This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. Hello. It's good to see everybody. Good to see everyone here. Good to see everyone at home. Um, if you're listening now, good morning. Um, if not, uh, for later on. Um, so yeah, so we, in the last few weeks, if you've been around, we've been starting a new series, and that series has been on heroes from the Old Testament. So each week, someone different has been coming up and talking about uh, a person from the Old Testament, talking about their life and how God has used them within their own, their own story and within God's wider story in the Bible. Um, and so today, uh, I decided that we'd be looking at the story of Rahab. Um, so I'm not sure how much you know about the story of Rahab. Uh, you may know that her story is found in the book of Joshua. Uh, you may know that she's part of the story about Jericho, where these lights wander around the walls and the walls collapse. Um, but what I'd wager is what most of you know about Rahab is that she was a prostitute. Uh, because, and it's certainly the first thing that came to my mind when I think of Rahab. And that's because it's so often said with her name. She's often known as Rahab the prostitute, as if like that's her first, middle, and last name. And it seems like everywhere in the Bible that she is mentioned, at least for the first time, she's always called Rahab the prostitute. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament where she's mentioned again, apart from in one location where she's given a different name. And it makes you wonder, why is this the case? You know, like, was there another Rahab they're trying to differentiate from being like, oh, do you mean Rahab like the escort? Like, no, I mean Rahab the, strip, the prostitute. Oh, okay, that Rahab. Like, it just seems a little bit odd, um, especially as no one else in the Old Testament is given such a name or a title. Uh, you know, it's other great people who are mentioned in the Old Testament aren't given, like, a moniker after them, uh, especially something bad. Like, you never get Moses the deserter, or Samson the sex addict, or David the adulterer, or even the murdering adulterer. I think if these words did follow their name, uh, it would definitely change how we, how we feel about their stories, how uh, we felt uh, about their heroic or redeeming parts of their story. Imagine if it was David, the murdering adulterer, the man after God's own heart. Like it doesn't quite sound the same because it's, you know, you're, you're putting those two things together. Um, and this also kind of reminded me of um, when I was traveling in Portugal. Uh, a few months ago, I went with my friend and we're visiting Sintra, which is a palace um, northwest of um, Lisbon. Uh, and it's where the national palaces are. So uh, Portugal used to have royalty, they don't anymore, but um, they have these beautiful palaces that you can go into. Um, and genuinely one like the most beautiful places I've been to. Uh, and in one room they had a big table and then surrounding on the table on the wall were pictures of previous kings and queens of Portugal. And underneath you'd have the nickname of the, so it'd be like, yeah, their name and then like what they were known for. Which is quite funny because we'd go, my friend and I would go around the room looking at all of them and like comparing them. So you get some quite good ones like, Peter V, the hopeful, or John, the one with a good memory, uh, or Maria, the good mother, um, Anthony, the fighter, John, the perfect prince, um, Louis, the popular, or Sancho, the populator, which I thought was quite funny. And I was like, do you just have loads and loads and loads of kids? I mean, he had 11, but it's more because he used to populate the cities. So I was, I was like, oh, okay, that's less funny. But, uh, but then there were also some really like, not so good ones. There was Ferdinand, the fickle, Maria the Mad, I kind of like the alliteration of all of these. Manuel the Unfortunate, so, um, Peter the Cruel, or Miguel the Usurper. Um, yeah, clearly some of these names were better than others. Um, and as we were comparing our favorites, we were both wondering like, you know, what, what would you want to be known by? Because it's interesting that these names have stayed connected to these kings and queens for the rest of history. Whatever else they did, whatever else they may have been like, this nickname is what's now put below their picture. It's what they're remembered for. It's what they're called. 
And so I think some of these kings and queens, especially the ones with less complimentary names, could sympathize with Rahab. Because there are other things that Rahab is known for. And so today I'm on a mission to rename Rahab, at least maybe in our own minds. I want to explore the other names that Rahab could be known by. That is Rahab, the mother of great, the woman of great faith, and Rahab, the mother. Um, and so we're just going to turn to the story of Rahab. I realize there's obviously no screens um, today, so if you do have Bibles, you can open them. If you have it on your phone app, please do open it. Um, her story is found at the beginning of Joshua, so it's Joshua 2, and I'm going to be looking at verses 1 to 21. And so whilst you're finding this, I'll try and set the scene for the story. So if we, have, if we had Burns' timeline on the screen, we'd see that this story comes at the beginning of the conquest. So previously, Israel had been rescued from Egypt. They'd been led by Moses through the Red Sea into the desert, and they were supposed to enter the Promised Land. Um, spies were sent to the Promised Land, and they got a bit scared, came back and said, guys, we can't do it. Uh, and because of this, God promised that no one within that generation would enter into the Promised Land. So 40 years pass, they're wandering in the desert, effectively homeless, and this is where we meet the Israelites. Moses has died, Joshua, his right-hand man, has taken over um, and become their leader, and he is now ready to claim the land that God has promised them. And part of this land is Canaan, which is where Jericho sits, and this is where we start the story. So starting in verse 1, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, in modern, that's in modern-day Jordan, go look over the land he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the land, the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So the spies entered Jericho and Jericho, if you don't know, was a walled city um, in the area of Canaan next to the Jordan River. is actually 800 meters below sea level, which seems quite low. Um, and the Jordan Valley was, is kind of quite a barren landscape, desert-like, um, but Jericho itself had lots of natural springs. So actually it was, in this barren landscape, it was... Uh, quite an oasis, as in, in Deuteronomy it's called the city of palm trees. Um, and in some ways Jericho is actually much less of a city in the way that we think of a city. Uh, it's called a city in the Bible, but actually it's more like a military stronghold. It's actually quite small. It's only about six acres, uh, which take an hour to walk around apparently. Um, to put that into context, Bristol is about 27,000 acres. So it's quite a small dwelling. Um, and we know from the story Jericho had very tall walls surrounding it and protecting it. Um, and from archaeological digs, uh, most scholars believe that Jericho would have had two walls. You'd have an inner centre uh, wall and then a, another outer wall kind of covering around that. And the idea being that the outer wall then protects the inner wall. So if you're in the inner bit, you're kind of doubly protected because there's two walls. But if you're in the outer bit, you're slightly less protected. Um, and that's where we learn later on. That's where Rahab lived. It's likely she would have lived between those two walls and that's where her dwelling would have been. And in some ways, this isn't surprising, uh, because in Hebrew, the words used to describe Rahab's occupation means prostitute, but can also mean like innkeeper, because it was often used as a joint role. Um, as for someone in Rahab's position, uh, where there's no mention of a husband or a son, it seems like she's like the head of her household. Um, doing this job was kind of one of the few ways that a woman could make money, that she could survive, that she could provide for her family. So being on the edge of the city meant that her place was an easy place for travellers to find. They could stay the night at the inn. Um, but then also as a prostitute, Rahab would have been marginalised. She would have been relegated by her society um, and the people within her community and forced to live in that outer dwelling where her family would have been more vulnerable um, and more prone to attack. And so this explains why the spies went there as well. 
Because it might seem weird that these spies from Israel, who are supposed to be God's chosen people, first stop, prostitute place. Um, but it's the local city inn, so it would also be in the place where everyone else goes. It would be in a place where they didn't stick out quite as much, because uh, that's where other foreigners would have gone. And it would also be the best place to hear like, the local gossip, what's going on. Um, but despite this plan, it's clear that these two are not very good spies. They might have secretly been sent, but they're quickly discovered. The king of Jericho is told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. And this is where we see Rahab steps out and acts. But Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it came close, when it came time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them. You may catch up with them. But actually, she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear by me, by the Lord, that you, show, that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives the land. So she let them down by a rope through her window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding unless when you enter the land you tie this scarlet cord around the window, and unless you have brought your father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all your family into the house. If any of them go outside, their blood will be on their own heads, and we will not be responsible. But as for you in the house, their blood will be on our head, and if a hand is laid on them, but if you tell what we are doing, we are released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, and let it be as you say. So Rahab sent them away and they departed. And she tied a scarlet cord in the window. In reading this story, we can sometimes miss the significance of Rahab's statement, of her declaration. By declaring that the Israelite king, our God, is the God of heaven and the God of earth, Rahab is completely disowning and renouncing her own culture's gods, the Canaanite gods. The gods of her culture, her society, her people, the, even the gods that maybe her family would have believed in. And what is this declaration based on? It's not based on her rigorous study of the Bible or her time at church or a conversation she had with a friend. It's just based on two stories that she's heard of the Israelite God. And these are stories of events that happened 40 years ago. From this alone, Rahab makes this declaration of faith in God and effectively a prophecy over the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites. And so this is the first point I want to focus on. Even though Rahab's knowledge of God was small, her view of him was big. Out of this big view of God, Rahab is able to make a courageous step of faith. 
Her hiding of the spies is done at great cost to her and her family, potentially, if she is discovered. But instead, she chooses to trust her life and their life into the hands of these strangers, these people she's just met. And she does so even before they've won. She, doesn't, she trusts that they are, but she doesn't know that they're going to win. She's seen two spies that have been caught really quickly, and they're up against a city that has two walls and is armoured. But even in her limited knowledge of God, she trusts in his power and pledges herself to him and to Israel. And it is only through her doing this that the spies are saved. It's only through doing this that they're not captured and that they can go back to their camp and report their findings to Joseph. And that's how the rest of the story unfolds. As they go back, they say the city is ours and God tells the Israelites to walk around the walls of Jericho and they fall and they're able to seize the city. So although Rahab only knew a little about the power and plan of God, she let that shape her whole view of him. Or if I put it another way, she didn't let her current reality diminish what she'd heard about God. In a the devotional book I've been reading, I found this quote about faith. And it says, faith does not ignore reality, it just adds God to the equation. At the end of the day, faith is trusting God more than you trust your own assumptions. And I love that, the little bit at the beginning. Faith does not ignore reality, it just adds God to the equation. See, how much more of God do I know? Or how much more of God do I have access to compared to Rahab? And how many times have I seen God at work in my life and in my family's life? How many times have I seen him keep his promises to me? Many, many, many times. But often I'm very good at making my problems seem big and God seem small. Of diminishing his power and what I know of him, his faithfulness, his goodness to me, and his promises are making the things that are going on in my life bigger. And I don't say this to minimize what we face because our lives can, you know, terrible and painful and messy things happen in our lives. And some of them are bigger and some of them are small and some of them are momentary and some of them are chronic. Some of them are our own making and some of them are entirely undeserving. And when we feel upset and frustrated and fearful at each of these things, that is not unreasonable or ungodly or faithless. But we do have a choice about where we place these feelings and our fears of the future in our minds. Do we place them above God or below God? We have a choice as to whether we see these challenges and difficulties as being bigger than God, being bigger than he planned the plan he has for us, being beyond what he can help us with, or more life-defining than who we say God, who God says we are. And so where does this resonate with you? Are there things that you, that you are holding on to or wrestling with or trying to beat on your own and without God? There are many verses I could take from the Bible about God's love or faithfulness or promises, um, but I've chosen this one by Psalm, in Psalm 91, um, and it's the Passion Translation, so it might sound a bit different, but I liked it, so I picked it. Uh, verses 1 to 4, it says, When you abide under the shadow of God Almighty, you are hidden in the strength of God Most High. I can say he is the hope that holds me and the stronghold to shelter me, the only God for me, and he is my great confidence. He will rescue you from every hidden trap of the enemy. He will protect you from false accusation and any deadly curse. His massive arms are wrapped around you, protecting you. You can run under his covering of majesty and hide. His arms of faithfulness are a shield keeping you from harm. In what things today do you need to be reminded that God is the one who is bigger? 
Um, Rahab's story is actually included a few chapters on from where we finished, and that's in Joshua 6.25. It said, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had spent, sent as spies to Jericho. And so she lives among the Israelites to this day. So after Jericho is seized, Rahab and her family are rescued and welcomed into the Israelite community. Rahab begins this story as someone who is marginalized. She's someone on the outside in her nation and in society. And she ends, as, ends up as an accepted member of the tribes of Israel. From the book of Ruth, we find out that Rahab marries Salmon, who's an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. That's not actually where her story ends. I mentioned before, there's one other place in the Bible where Rahab is not introduced as Rahab the prostitute, but by another title. And that's in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. Here, Rahab is named as the mother of Boaz, uh, who was the husband of Ruth. Through this genealogy, Rahab is now placed into God's wider story. Through her actions, through her step of faith, she becomes part of the lineage that would lead to Jesus, which is not something you'd necessarily expect from the beginning of her story. And what I love from this genealogy is that Rahab is, for the first time, introduced with a different name. She's no longer titled Rahab the prostitute, but Rahab the mother. Rahab, the however many great grandmother of Jesus. In seeing and accepting and trusting in who God, um, who she heard God to be, Rahab makes a courageous and faithful step that takes her out of her current life and sets her on a new path. One where she becomes an ancestor of God's son, which I'm sure at the time is not something she saw coming. But so why is this significant? Well, I think it's because names are significant. How we define ourselves or let ourselves be defined is incredibly important. It will affect how we act, what we do, what we don't do, and how we view God. I said at the beginning I wanted us to imagine a new name for Rahab. Uh, or put another way, I wanted us to imagine a new identity for her. One that wasn't defined by her past, um, but what became of her in her future. A future that was partly defined by what she did, her choices, but also how God worked through those choices. So God's plan was not for Rahab to remain as she was or to be defined by her past. Instead, in God's plan, she receives a new identity, one that is so much bigger and better than her past. So where does this sit with you? Maybe you can think of something from your past that has or is following you. Maybe an action or regret or a habit. Or maybe it's not even something you've done, but something that's been said over you. I know I can certainly think of a few things in my own life. Um, when I was writing this talk, I was kind of struggling, wrestling a bit with whether to say a certain story, but I think I will, so we'll see how it goes. But I think when I was writing this and why I was struggling with writing this talk and ending it was because there was something I was working through as well, like in my own life, and that was that, um, and as some of you may know, I work at the university, I'm a research scientist, and in Three weeks ago, I finished my PhD, I completed it. Thank you. That's not why I said that, by the way, not physical. Um, uh, and so in the last few weeks, I've kind of been processing the end of that. You know, it's the end of four and a half years, and it means change, and I'm terrible at change. So I've been processing that, and I think one of the things that's been coming back to me is something that was said over me years ago. Um, in one of my first jobs in a lab. So it's you know, before my PhD, before I'd even finished my undergrad. And that was that someone said over me um, at work, like, you, you will never make it as a scientist. You, you will never get a PhD. You're a Tehran lab, so no one will want you. 
And at the time, I think I was able to say, like, no, you do not get to say that over me. But as much as I wanted what I said to be true, I think I can see how that has, those words have followed me um, in how, what I've done and how I've worked as a scientist. Um, it has been what's echoed when I make a mistake, when experiments don't work, when things fail, when you do a presentation, you're like, oh, that went really badly and I can answer your questions. It's the thing that echoes in the back of my head. Like, you, you can't do this. You won't make it. No one will want you. And behind that, behind those words, actually becomes a fear of failure, of, of saying, oh, if I don't make this, I'm a failure, and that's bigger than who God says I am. Um, and it's not to say that um, I know, instead of seeing... Um, uh, my job in its priorities of God is saying, you know, I do this job, but that's not what defines me, what God says over me, defines me instead. Um, instead, those words kind of placed my job, my worth in that above what God said of me. Um, and so, yeah, I can see how those words have been following me, I guess, haunting me through my PhD. Um, and uh, I guess that resonated with today because I want to say that there are so many more things that we are called instead. There are so many things that we may be defined by but that God says, no, I don't want you to be defined by that. Instead, God calls us um, his son or his daughter. He calls us forgiven. He calls us free. He calls us redeemed and blessed in his very good work. He calls us protected and delighted in and precious and beloved. And so today, I wanted to say that if there's something over you that you feel defined by, if there's words over you that people have said, or there's actions over you or habits, I want you to say that those are not the things that define you. Um, and so today that might, that might resonate with you. There might be something that clicks in your head that goes, yes, I feel like there's something that's been chasing me. Um, something that I've placed above how God sees me. And so as we come to finish, um, I want to take a moment to, uh, if you want to step forward courageously and say, you know, I want to break free of that. I'm going to pray over myself because I know that's what I need to. Um, but if that comes to mind, I just want to take this moment now to, yeah, pray over you that... Um, that those things would be broken, that you'd be set free from those words and instead see yourself as God sees you, as his beloved child. Um, so dear God, we, we come here today with our hands open, our hearts open to you. Um, and we come to you saying that we want to be defined um, by who you say we are, what you have planned for us, not by our past, um, not by what has been said over us, but um, by your words. And um, I should pray for those that maybe feel trapped or held down or chased, pursued um, by previous sins or previous words that I want you to, those to be broken free. I want those strongholds to be released. Um, and we pray this in your name, knowing that you are a God that loves us, that pursues us, that loves us exactly as we are, but also um, loves us too much to leave us where we are that you want to see us grow and into your child, into a child that knows that they are loved, that they are free, that they are forgiven. In God's name, I pray that over us. Amen. Um, and also, um, uh, my, back to my first point was, uh, are there things that you're holding on to? Are there things in your life that are going on that you need Rahab's view of God instead of your own? You need to see God as this bigger, powerful God who will do what he says he set out to do. Um, yeah, for you, you might have a really healthy view of yourself and your identity, which is great. Um, but instead, it may be that there are things going on that you just need to give over to God. And so I want to give you this opportunity as well to, to hand those things over to God. In the worship earlier, um, Becky was saying, um, hallelujah, it is our God that reigns. And so as we um, stay uh, here in this, in this, we've got a few more minutes to stay with God. Um, Dan and Karen are going to come up and pray over us, have some words of prophecy. 
Maybe those are the words you need to say over that problem. Hallelujah, it is my God that reigns. Hallelujah, it is my God that reigns over this issue, over this habit, over this illness, over whatever it is. Hallelujah, it is my God that reigns.